0: Attention Cannabis Radio listeners, do you suffer from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD? These are the most common qualifying conditions for medical cannabis. Did you know that in many states you can visit a doctor online with no waiting rooms, no drive, not even an appointment needed? See a doctor right from your smartphone. It's fast, convenient, and it'll save you money as most states don't collect taxes on medical cannabis purchases. So what are you waiting for? Go to MarijuanaDoctors.com slash Cannabis Radio and get $5 off your on-demand medical card evaluation.
1: Exploring the history of cannabis culture. One artifact
0: and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project.
2: With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director... Bobby Black. What's up, fellow Canophiles, and welcome to another episode of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact, and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. Over the past 25 years, functional glass art has become a huge part of cannabis culture. Heady borosilicate bongs and bubblers are not only the main methods by which the majority of glass artists express their creativity and earn a living, they're also a way for potheads to reflect their personalities through their paraphernalia. And let's be honest, in our modern materialistic culture, having an impressive glass collection is undeniably a symbol of one's high stoner status. Of course, none of the amazing artistry we see today would be possible without the pioneers who paved the way. As with any other artistic or social movement, it had to start somewhere. For the glass industry, that somewhere was Eugene, Oregon. It was there, during the 1990s, that a hippie glass wizard by the name of Bob Snodgrass first originated the techniques that would inspire and influence all those to follow. My guest today was among the earliest of that sorcerer's apprentices. After learning his skills from the master, he ventured out on his own, crafting his own unique style and founding what would become the largest glass manufacturing company in the world. Despite losing everything he built during the government's pointless, politically motivated paraphernalia pogrom known as Operation Pipe Dreams in 2003, he's managed to bring his brand back from the brink and remains more relevant and respected today than ever before. Please join me in extending a warm Canthropology welcome to one of the true OGs of the glass game, the owner and founder of Jerome Baker Designs, Mr. Jason Harris. Jason, thanks for joining us.
3: How you doing, Bobby? Good to hear from you, man. Always good to to talk to Bobby Black on the podcast.
2: (laughs) Right on, man. Appreciate your time. So, um, yeah, let's talk a little about your history, about the history of Jerome Baker, uh, over the years, and and how it's gone from there to here. Where do you, where are you from originally?
3: Oh, I was born and raised down in uh, Miami, Florida, and um, you know, just uh, moved all over the United States. My mom was a flight attendant, so I I've, I've spent, you know, I went to four different high schools in four different states. So I, I got a I got a round education in geography for sure. I ended up in, in Eugene, Oregon is kind of where I grew up. Uh, I went to my, my, my college years there, University of Oregon, and um, you know learned a lot about
1: manhood, being a hippie, and um, you know growing up in Eugene. Right on. Um, you also went to school at, uh, in Massachusetts, though. Didn't you? Art school? I did. I did two years out there at a place called Dean Junior
3: College. And, um, had a, uh, a great art teacher there, uh, Mr. sobozinski and learned a lot about oil painting and process printmaking and, and things that I, I ended up getting attracted to and art was, um, was, was kind of
1: rooted there for sure in Massachusetts. And that was before you moved to Oregon though?
2: Yeah,
3: that was before I moved to Oregon, you know, in Massachusetts, we had a, a, a school bus, uh, all painted up all crazy, uh, and we would drive it around to different, um, venues uh, with people from from campus and you know go to all the concerts the fish shows the grateful dead shows and all that And that's kind of where i got i got i got my first taste of uh, of the psychedelic you know freedom and then from there uh i had heard that you know university of oregon and eugene you know had a lot of school buses and people with dreadlocks and you know really good weed out there and so uh that was kind of my my attraction to go
1: on out to oregon when was your? What was the first time you got high? Do you, was it a memorable experience? You know, I I I can't pinpoint the first
3: time I got high, but I know that as a human, uh, as 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 a youth, you know, I I tried to uh, you know whether it was uh, smoke a dried banana or um or or <laughs> boil boil lettuce for some kind of you know property that would that would make me uh, you know. Um, high, uh, you know, I don't know why I was doing it, but I think certain humans uh, maybe were from a certain, you know, uh, alien tribe uh, know these, these things and, and (laughs) somehow explore those realms. Uh, So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's where it all came from. Uh, And then I, and then as as time went on, I can remember, you know, buying a, a bag of, of cannabis and really, you know, getting a different smell out of it and, and, over the late '80s, you know, and and early '90s, the whole thing changed. You know, it seemed like when when we were getting, you know, that first piece of kind bud, uh, and that that, that changed everything for us.
2: Yeah. So I, I guess like me, you you consider yourself like a natural born stoner.
3: <laughs> yeah, I really do. I really do. Um, there's there's you know, it's just it's just I think a lot of people are are connected to it in a way that they don't even know about.
2: Yeah, you know it's weird to me when I when I meet uh and know of adults who have like gone their whole lives without ever even trying like a puff of weed let alone any other substances and I think back and I'm like when I I tried weed for the first time when I was 11 I I, I didn't try all drugs that early but as soon as I was aware of that kind of stuff, I was immediately drawn to it. I wanted to smoke it and see, at least see what it was like. You know, I didn't know if I'd like it, but I immediately wanted to, I was drinking, I was, you know, smoking by junior high school, uh, not excessively, but you know, starting to experiment dabbling.
3: Right. And you kind of think back in, in your, <clears throat> in your older life now and, you know, kind of wonder where those, those, you know, instincts came from. And so, uh, you know, I look back on it and, and thank God that I didn't get drawn to anything, you know, more dark, uh, or more addictive. Sure. Um, but that just wasn't in my, in my realm, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, I always walk carefully and, and, and try to understand my, my parameters and, and how far I can go or, you know, where, where I should take breaks and things like that. I think that, you know, just the human body too, you, you can, you, you know, you have to have a balance and, and it has to be a healthy balance.
2: Cool. So what year was it that you moved to Oregon and uh, and how did you get your first exposure to the glass art scene there?
3: Well, before I moved to Oregon, uh, when I was in Massachusetts, like I told you, I had a bus and we did a lot of Grateful Dead shows and I had seen uh, the guy Bob Snograss out on the Grateful Dead parking lot. And um, one of my you know friends got a pipe from him that was uh, one of these mentor kind of hippie guys. You know, he had the, he played the guitar and had the bus and he was the cool dude and he had the, the Snoggrass pipe. And I remember uh, during that same time, it must have been, I don't know, 1990. And um, there was, uh, you know, I had, a, I had went and bought a crack pipe so that I could pack that good Northern Lights in there and taste <laughs> it because there was nothing else that I could really get those flavors from. Um, and you wanted to conserve your weed because it was so fucking expensive and rare back then. So you know, I saw this guy with this pipe, and I had remembered, uh, you know, Snodgrass, and when I and I knew he was out there in Eugene. I remember talking to him on on, on the tour there. And then uh, when I got out to Eugene, my my first you know week there, I, I look him up in the phone book, S N O D Grass uh, on the, on the white pages, and call him up and uh, say, hey, can I come over and, and check you guys out? You know what I mean? I just moved out here from. East Coast, and you know, they happily, you know, said, "Yeah, come over." They lived in a little trailer in Glenwood, which was next to Eugene, and they had, you know, the, the horse next door and the, the chickens outside, and you know, Bob had his overalls on, and you know, he, he and his wife was making pickles and making rabbit stew, and uh, you know, these these people were just—I I just wanted to be like him instantly. You know, he was the coolest dude I'd ever met and um at that time i was an art major in college right? i would already got into the university of oregon and uh into these process oriented arts like uh, printmaking i did a lot of intaglio printing or linoleum uh cuts and things like this that just took time and energy and i i tried to um figure out how i can incorporate you know glass into my process and uh over time saved up the money bought a torch. And started to uh, get some lessons from Bob and his people. And, and his number one guy at the time was Cameron Tower. And Cameron taught me, you know, uh, just essential moves in glass uh, when nobody really knew anything. This is pre-internet. Um, so so we only knew about, a, you know, a cutting torch or a small little national hand torch that would sit on the bench. And we would just rage this thing and try to melt as much glass as we could. And there was an energy, you know, in the air at that point when we started, when I started blowing glass with Bob, you know, there was only you know, 10 of us. And there was an energy in the air of, of something that I would assimilate to when uh, Manet, Monet, Picasso, all these people are hanging out together in Paris understanding there's a there's a whole cubist movement going on or a renaissance going on in the art and they're part of it i felt the same way at the time you know we knew we knew something big was going to happen it was kind of like when you saw fish back in the 80s you know you knew this band was going to be hot (laughs) and so with that um, that's that, that was the energy in the air surrounding that pipe makers, you know, scene at the time I would be flown in the early days, they would fly me out to New York. Um, and they would weigh our pipes on the scale, 10 bucks a gram we'd get, uh, right. You know what I mean? Right along with it. And we, we'd go back to Eugene and just try to make a bigger marble and a bigger pipe, thicker pipe. You know what I mean? And so it drove, it drove the whole, the whole scenario. And that was, that was magical. Uh, so that that was my how I interacted with him at first, and kind of how we we kind of you know developed a little bit together. So you were kind you know, of like dropped. in his
2: original original class of of apprentices, right? Uh, who else was in that uh, original group with you? Well, in the
3: beginning, uh, when I showed up on the scene, uh, it, the, the one of the first apprentices was Tori, who went on to um, develop the the spoonpipe. Um, and after that was Hugh uh, and and Cameron. And um, it was Chris Shave and I over there. And, um, you know, it, it became it became, you know, the numbers came into the thousands over time. I, I'm on his lineage listed on his timeline as number seven apprentice. Wow. Um, so it was lucky about being seven. in the right <laughs> lucky number seven. It was it was about being in the right place at the right time. And an understanding, you know, I, I don't know, there was just some magical attraction to Bob, um, you know, no matter no matter who's met him through the years, no matter who I've brought over there to him, um, he's impacted them in one way, shape or form. He's just that kind of a being. Um, so so being around him, you know, it's kind of like being around a master and um, and and it's not a master in a, in, a, in, a, in a technical sense that you would, you know, that, that drops it down on a, on a technical sense. It's a master on an imaginative sense. Um, it's, it's more of wizardry. Uh, you know, Bob discovered fuming pipes, uh, which is what this whole thing is based on. When he's fuming in the pipe, fuming a, a, a silver or a precious gold into the pipe, it's like a mirror without a backdrop. You can see through it. As the fumes go into the pipe, it creates a black background and it starts to reflect out different drawings and patterns that Bob might have done inside the piece. Bob also is responsible for inventing the pushed-in bowl. Before we pushed the bowl into the glass pipe, they were making funnel bowls. That funnel bowl would heat up, and it would burn you. You couldn't smoke a lot of pot out of it. This one, when Bob invented it, you can keep packing, and you can clean it nicely. So he's done a lot for the, for the, for the movement in the beginning of this thing. Um, and, and unknowingly, it's not like he knew he was setting up uh, an entire you know industry, uh, but he did. And, um, and, and, and luckily I was there, um, at that, at the right time and place.
2: Cool. And so the fuming is what's also known as color changing glass. Pretty much. That's that's, Correct. that's the same Correct. thing. Yeah. It
1: appears to change color. The more you use it. That's right.
2: Cool. So you, you, you apprenticed under Bob, you learned these techniques, these basic techniques, and then you started to kind of create an experiment and do stuff on your own. Were there any techniques or, or styles that you feel like you, you pioneered that you created?
3: Absolutely. Well, you know, Bob uh, making the pipes and there was a few of us making them, and we had a small cluster of a scene. And so, you know, I wanted to set myself apart uh, from what everybody else was was kind of moving forward with. And I felt like setting myself apart was to make a bigger uh, a piece, bigger in scale, uh, which which became the bong. And uh, I had no idea that you can use a machine to, to blow the balls at the time. Uh, everything was by hand and we were just discovering things you know, as we, we went. Um, as i mentioned before uh, my mom's a flight attendant so i started to utilize that that benefit and go all over the world and look at different glass starting in italy in murano italy you know spending a few weeks there working uh, you know sweeping the shop up and just 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 being a part of it or or working in um, uh, germany and different places that i that i could find that uh, read about and, and figure out where the glass was coming from so I tried to just get a more broad sense of of, of technique, you know, in, in different parts of the world to pick up different technique as well as equipment. And so with the traveling benefits, you know, I was able to bring back to Eugene different equipment that would that would that would put me over and 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 over time develop a, a production technique. So I started with one bong and that was shown to me by the Snodgrass apprentice, Cameron Tower. He showed me how to make my first bong. And after that, I just started to to go and figured out where the machines were and how to do them with machines and build my production. And by the time Jerry died in 1995, um, that's when I got real serious and um, you know made a formal corporation. And you know we 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 started to lay down the the Jerome Baker designs, and we named that after Jerry Garcia, Jerome, and Baker getting baked designs just kind of a, a thing that got us some discounts in some some whatever stores and <laughs> and I wanted to have something that everybody could kind of get behind a name a brand something besides uh, Jason Harris and so uh, you know for me uh, creating the Jerome Baker brand was was kind of giving homage to the whole industry the lifestyle what what inspires us and then you know again something easy for something to, somebody to get behind and create um, so it's been it's been a lot of fun. Uh, developing the brand and by 1999 we were doing four million a year i had 70 employees in eugene multiple buildings a campus of buildings you know with houses and things like this we had people, a lot of people living there bands would stop through it was definitely a an epicenter
1: and um you know whatever in 1996 is when the internet started We we were online and in 96 with a website. So you started, you originally started selling your pipes on Dead Tour,
2: right? And you and Chris Shave were like kind of partners or you worked together and that Chris Shave is the guy who did Jock Creations, right?
3: Correct. Chris, uh, Chris and I worked together uh, down the street from the Snodgrass shop for uh, a few years and then, and then got into a bigger compound with a, another glass blower named Dan K. And it was all pre-internet, like I said. So uh, there was, there was the point when we moved to the bigger shop with Dan K. Uh, There was the one day that he that Dan Kay had come back from Salem, New Jersey, Salem Community College is the only uh, school in America that you can get a degree in scientific flame working. And that's what we do. So Dan had gone to that school. He was the only one out of all of us that had gone. And so he came back with a big torch, a Carlisle CC burner. That's the first time anybody's seen a big torch. He came back with heavy wall glass. Nobody'd seen that stuff before. So it changed the game. In the first week, we made the first bubbler. Uh, did, uh, that was Cameron and Bob. I brought it out to the country fair. You know, it was a big time, a big a big spark for the industry. And I was blessed enough to work with Dan Kay and Chris Shaves, both of whom have passed away uh, now. And, um, you know, I pay a lot of homage to those guys. Dan Kay brought the rap and rake to us. Uh, before that, you know, it was just uh, loading art on top of each other and, uh, and trying to blend it all in. So it it changed the whole game, you know, technically, uh, with, with the advent of the Carlisle CC burner and then the advent of the rapid rake, it changed everything. And, and, and at that point, that's when the thing kind of really was taken off and that's probably, you know, '96.
2: Right. And so just to, just to clarify, so I, the first borosilicate bongs were like around 92, 93? Is that right?
3: Yeah, the first borosilicate bongs that we had, the, the the snap and pull down stem. Before that, any borosilicate bong was set up with that rose or something on the front of it. You've seen them. They smoke crack out of them or they smoke you know a little bit of pot out of them or something like that. It wasn't right, but it was borosilicate glass. Mm-hmm. Now, now, just to back up in our story— Borosilicate glass is resistant to thermal shock. It can heat and cool to extreme temperatures without cracking. That's why we use it in this uh, with make pipes out of so you can smoke out of it. You can hold it and you can you can use it longer. Any other glass would crack. Similar to how it cracks in the, um, the dishwasher, you know, it, it cracks with, with expansion, with heating and cooling too quickly. So that's why we use the borosilicate glass. We know it as Pyrex glass. It was invented in the late 1800s in Germany. Now we look at that invention of Pyrex glass in the late 1800s, and we try to figure out now when did the first borosilicate pipe happen and where and why. My theory is that it happened in Europe somewhere because they were in a lab, and it was some stoner scientists, and they wanted to get high. They put some hash and tobacco in there. That's how I know they smoked for many eons back there, and they smoked it out of that borosilicate pipe. Now, somebody sees it, and we know the first borosilicate pipe maker – I'm not going to call him the first borosilicate. I'm going to say we know there's a borosilicate pipe maker that taught Bob how to work, and his name's Chuck something. Forgive me for not remembering his last name right now, but Bob knows. Okay, so he taught Bob, and we know he has pipes from the 70s. In early 70s, late 60s. Wow. So, so that kind of timelines a mark of Chuck was making – he had a head shop, and he was making his own pipes for his head shop. Now, who taught Chuck or where did Chuck get the idea is where we need to kind of dig more in. But there's some uh, European-American transfer. There's some European that's going to claim, yeah, it happened here, and that's the story that, that we're looking for. Yeah. So beyond, beyond that, now it comes into Bob's world, and that's the first – um, you know, real pipe that's 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 actually, you know, thought out with the pushed-in bowl and the fume on it, and we're talking, you know, 80, 88, somewhere in there. So you have a big gap, and during that gap, there was a couple of people. Uh, one guy made a, a a pipe called the Ultimate, and when I was a kid, it was a borosilicate pipe that was all, it had all these layers of rods that were that were washed it down, and then it's bent it to a Sherlock, and it had a gold fume in it. Uh, the the guy's name who made the pipe is Skip something. I you know. And again, Bob knows these real details of history. And that's yeah. the ultimate pipe. And that ultimate pipe was the one that was the mass produced borosilicate pipe that I saw. Um, that that's that's from early. But you know this this goes a little deeper. And this is definitely a Bobby Black, um, <laughs> a CSI trail that we're going to need you to kind of help us. As, yeah. a, as you know, we call ourselves the Piper Movement. Uh, some people call us degenerate artists, but there is something here, and the history does need to be, um, you know, traced back to figure out where this came from in the overall. But the borosilicate glass is the factor, and borosilicate glass, you know, has taken us this far because of science, um, and now because of this pipe, piper movement, we've developed the borosilicate palette. In the past 20 years, there's a thousand colors, in, but 20 years ago, there's four colors. So in a, in a big overall 5,000-year history of glass,
1: that's a real big push in sure. the technology of a material you know, just because of cannabis. Wow. I know. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the,
2: that's fascinating stuff that you were talking about. And, yeah, that's what I'm here for. I mean that's what Canthropology and World of Cannabis Museum is all about is tracking down the true history of cannabis culture. And getting Absolutely. it out there for people, so I'm down to work with you on that. Let's uh, let's do a follow up episode on that, and uh, we can see what we can find out. Um, but let me, I'm going to take a quick break right now uh, for a commercial. But we'll be right back with more from Jerome Baker himself, Jason Harris, here on Anthropology. All right, guys, and we are back here on Canthropology. Our guest today is Jason Harris, founder of Jerome Baker Glass Designs, one of the earliest pioneers of the smokable glass scene. And so right before the break, we were talking about some of the amazing colors and innovations that have happened in the glass industry thanks to to the functional glass industry, thanks to cannabis people getting involved in it. So um, obviously, glass art has been around a long time, but it wasn't until the cannabis people got involved that... A lot of these techniques uh, got pioneered. Can you talk a little about the industry and how it's evolved over the time, to- over time, and uh, some of the other new techniques that have been developed?
3: Yeah, you know, um, the industry, uh, the, the, the pipe making industry, you know, uh, separated from the whole ancillary cannabis industry. The pipe making industry itself has developed, you know, tremendously over the past twenty years, just due to the legalization of cannabis. So, from nineteen ninety six. Uh, When I had my, you know, medical license in Oregon and those, that was the first big wave of of medical licenses, you know, besides California right there. So, so, so different, different glass blowers come up out of this scene that Bob creates. And we kind of feed on this, on this, this legalization of cannabis or black market cannabis. Um, You know, you have a lot of, a lot of wheat getting grown on the West coast and the big boys would, would buy the, the heady, heady pieces traditionally. Um, so it's fueled uh, a, a drive to want to make more and more expensive and elaborate pieces of glass. And just that alone, uh, taking new technique or finding new techniques. You know, you got to remember, as a 5,000-year-old art, it's like this, this technique, there's a lot out there. It's like reinventing the wheel on some, on some of this stuff. If you look at ancient books of glass blowing, you can look at things and say, oh, wow, how do they do that? And then try to incorporate it into it now. Um, so that you know the research, the drive, the drive to make the more elaborate pieces. Again, that's kind of what what has has taken us things to the next level.
2: Right on. So I know that you guys have put out a number of different styles over the years. Uh, bubblers. I know you have one called the Mothership. Uh, can you talk a little about your different styles of pieces that you've done, and what is it that makes what's the trademark style of Jerome Baker? How do people recognize a, J- a JBD when they see it?
3: Well, we have kind of a, um, you know, we have a certain look, and the look is a little primitive in terms of how we, we apply the artwork or incorporate the artwork into the, into the bonk. Okay, so some stuff that we do now has it like like if you were to visualize a bong, it has a shaft. The whole piece is one big shaft. You know, we can put art all over the shaft and and kind of do different storylines or different themes within that shaft. And then we adorn the back of some of them with artwork like sculpture. So we would be um, just doing like you know, if we, if, you know, mushrooms or, 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 skull, or skulls and things like this. The one thing that I try to tie into everything is a little bit of fume, but on the same note on, on, on some of the newer dab uh, stuff that's coming out or, or some things that I just want to get off kilter with uh, sometimes I won't fume it at all. Maybe I'll put a JBD logo on there and stuff. And and sometimes you won't, you know, maybe some of the, some of the pieces you won't even recognize as part of my brand only because uh, I, I'm trying to do some, some, you know, it'd be like an, a, a, a musician uh, playing a, an album, and we have a couple of different genres uh, within the album, but it all kind of, it, 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 it all, it all is one because it's it's the same band. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. But on the back, on the back note, a lot of the stuff is fumed. It has my my signature blue fumes on there. That's .999 silver that we take and we we boil in front of the flame and then vaporize it onto the glass, and it creates that mirror without a background effect that makes it appear to change color The more you use it, I also do. A, most of my bongs have an ice pinch right above the ball on the front of it, and that's for a few different reasons. So you can hold it by that. It's kind of a a good feel, a tactile uh, part of the the experience. Um, it also adds a really sexy look to the piece, I think. Yeah. Uh, and as well as it makes like an ice pinch, you can drop a piece of ice in there and then it, uh, it holds some ice up there. We, uh, we also, you know, do a lot of different herbal stuff. Like I'll pick a fresh thyme or mint or things like that and stuff the entire shaft of the bong with that. Oh, wow. Um, you can take the bong out of the freezer, uh, stuff it with some ice and some, uh, and some, you know, strawberry leaves or rose petals and, uh, really, you know, have a, have an interesting, uh, you know, full, aromatic experience, you know what I mean? And, 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 you know, it can be, you know, you can make your ritual, you can vary your ritual, right? You can, you can do different things with these. Yeah. So yeah, my, my signature on this is just to to, to have a really creative element on it or, or a creative spin to it. Um, and, 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 and just stay ahead of the pack. I look at this whole industry, this whole glass blowing thing as almost like a peloton that everybody's pedaling along. There's certain guys up at the front that everybody's drafting off of. And then there's certain guys in the back that, that,
1: that, that stay in the pack that keep the whole thing moving. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, where I visualize it all. Right on. Um, so you mentioned musical
2: genres, uh, but and I and I know that you have made some custom-made pieces for a lot of famous artists. Uh, I believe you've done one for Santana, Snoop Dogg. Can you talk a little about some of the pieces you've made for, for celebs?
3: Yeah, Snoop's was a great. We just made him a jar uh, maybe a year ago, a big blue jar that he wanted to hold a pound of weed in, and he wanted it for the studio. We put his logo in gold on the front of the thing. I mean, just an incredible, big project. You know, you're talking days if not weeks, to create one item. Uh, we just did a, 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 a project for, uh, we made some whiskey glasses for Tom Mariah and the rest of Slayer. Nice. Um, and we made them special skull bottom whiskey glasses. Sweet. Um, I'm getting a, a Bill Maher commission right now, and we're going to do a bust of Bill Maher. Wow. Um, we've made, um, you know, many pieces over the years for celebrities from Rita Marley to, uh, George Clooney, Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore and on and on and on. Yeah. You know, look, the, the bong itself is, is something more than just an item that sits on the shelf. I mean, it's like, kind of like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's it's a special element. It's just, it's, it's almost got a spiritual feel to it, you know, and, 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 it represents a lifestyle. And so so by having this, this cool piece of art in your apartment or in your house or something like this, it kind of shows who you are. And now especially uh, during this, this tumultuous COVID time, uh, people aren't buying concert tickets. They're not buying shoes. Uh, the, the bongs the dab rigs that's a way to express themselves they get something cool that they show up at a friend's house with and they're like hey boom this is this is what i got this is my thing it's like showing off your new shoes or your new backpack or something cool and it's it's part of you maybe one of them you have you have your rubber ducky on the back of it the glass rubber ducky or maybe another one you go out and it's got the glass skull you know what i mean and you It's where you're going or who you're hanging out with. Some people buy them to use them for, to give away to people. They work better than, than, uh, you know, currency in certain situations. You know I mean? (laughs) Hey man, I got a bong for you, man. You want to come redo my kitchen? You You know, whatever it is, people jump. Um, so, so it's fun. It's it's just something different, and the bottom line is you use this thing to get high and get high and get spiritual and get you know inspirational and hopefully some create some good change in the world, right? So we got a lot of people you know using the product. Uh, it's much different than you know a beer glass or or or, or something else that that's that's going to take you to a different you know realm. And so we we're we're definitely you know stoked to. To do this, and be part of this industry,
2: right on, and and unlike a lot of the uh, functional glass artists out there, I, I've noticed that uh, JBD pieces are typically very affordable. Uh, they they tend to be on the lower price range. They're not in the thousands of dollars. I'm guessing that's that's a conscious decision you make to keep it accessible to, to the masses, right?
3: Yeah, for for me, uh, I like the production element of what I do. Uh, we have a we have a little studio. Everybody touches the pieces. Everybody puts their puts their hand in it, and so everybody takes a part in it. And the way I'm producing them, uh, I like to keep them flowing. Uh, so we So you know, we would sometimes I'm taking you know a few days or a few weeks sometimes on a piece, but it's a certain part of the shop that does that, and uh, and then those particular pieces. You know, I, it's just kind of like a freedom of expression kind of a thing. Like, this is how far we can go. Here it is. And so those happen, you know, maybe once a month or once every two months. So it's not a lot of them. I also have a bunch of gear that I sell, like the empty lunch boxes that you put pieces in or the mats or the, the tips. Or I do a little clear boy pipe for, you know, 20 bucks. So we try to try to keep everybody happy so everybody can touch it. Um, And 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 use it. Uh, I mean, you know, reality is I get so many people and and in so many walks of life that I would never guess. You know, that come up to me and say, "Oh, dude, you know, I mean, you're that's the first bong I ever had." You know what I mean? And 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 and, you know, I did this and did that, and I got inspired and stuff. So that's a lot of fun to hear, right? So so, you know, that that makes a big difference in in the whole humanity thing, man. You know, I mean, I think we all need to be. You know, helping to loosen this thing up a little bit, man. People are getting a little tight here and fighting this (laughs) shit. You know what I mean? We just need to smoke and chill and, you know, get back to reality here, man. Get back to the garden, man. People need to be planting food and and recycling
1: and paying attention to what's wrong and, and trying to correct it. Right on. Uh, So there's one particular piece that I want to specifically ask you about, and that,
2: of course, is the piece that we have in our museum collection. So we were able to acquire this amazing piece from you for the museum. Um, it's It's a bong with a spotted toad or frog, whichever, I don't know what you prefer to call it, on it, and it has a dragonfly at the top of the tube. Um, some mushrooms in the marbles. Um, these are all typical themes of that time period, I-, I believe. Right? Can you tell me a little about that piece? Is it an earlier? Yeah. Is it an earlier piece? What year it might have been made?
3: Yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing it's in the it's in the early 2000s um, that the piece was in a collection. Uh, I think it was first in one of my family's collection, and it went to somebody, and then I had to go acquire it uh, to get it back for uh, you guys for the museum. And I helped facilitate that, and and getting these older pieces is very, very difficult right now. Uh, They consider them a pre-op. In in 2003, February 23rd, I was arrested with Tommy Chong and 55 others in what they called Operation Pipe Dreams. And so that cut my company down. Um, We went underground after that and didn't do much production at all until uh, 2010. Uh, so yeah, we're going we to talk kind of more about under- that in the
2: next segment for sure. I want to get into the details on
3: that. Yes. But I- so, so the piece that you have is considered a pre-op piece, pre-operation pipe dream. Those pieces have more than 10 times in value. Uh, so because, because it's glass, the beauty is in the fragility. A lot of the things break because people don't keep them tidy. Uh, if you keep it tidy, it's going to last lifetimes. So with that, uh, we have, you know, there a, a really pure example of what was going on in the height of the pre opterone Baker days in Eugene with the 70 employees. It's different than what I have going on now. What I have going now is a is ultra modern version of that old days style, um, which which um, uh, that's what I want is evolution in the brand. Sure. So you know that, that that's that's where that goes to acquire these pre-op pieces. Uh, you know you have to go CSI them and then uh, and then and then have the right offer and and have the right butter to get the get the shoe, get the horn in <laughs> the shoe. Right?
2: Yeah, but so is there any is there any specific story or, or more details you could give me on it as far as who who the owner was or, or how or you know who might have had a hand in, in, in doing it? Was it you? Was it other people in your shop?
3: Yeah, again, when, with the bongs that are go, going through my shop, everybody touches it. So, so everybody takes a part, and one person makes the top, one person makes the ball, one person makes the back, one person makes the bowl, and so
1: on. Uh, so so it's, it's different people touching those pieces. Whose Especially, idea was the frogs? Because I know you were using that as a common theme at the time. Right. So, so the way we apply the artwork on the back is with a series of, of swipes. So I
3: would take a big giant rod and create, you know, make it screaming hot and then wipe it down the piece. And that might create the body of the frog. I would reheat the rod in my hand and then wipe it over to the right and make a leg. So that frog was was the culmination of these these swipes and and, and getting them more and more and more clean over the years. So if you look at a, a, a early '90s, you know, frog and and put it against what you have right there as an early 2000s frog, it's a, it's a much more primitive look. Where what you have there is at the height of you know these 70 employees and the best of the best in there working. Uh, that's what you have a prime example of. You know the, some of the best uh, Jerome Baker work that that was ever done.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, it's a gorgeous piece. Uh, I mean, it's so detailed and just just really uh, captures that time period and that style so so perfectly. Um, so, what what would you have? Uh, what would something like this have cost when it came out? And as opposed to what do you think it might be valued at around now?
3: Um, so, when we, when it came out, it might have been uh, five hundred dollars and i think that what it's valued at now is you know it's, it's for me to put values on stuff <laughs> is tough but i would value it in the $8000 range and i would say that there's a there's a there's a fans group and it's on um, on facebook and there's over 8000 strong and in there is where i recommend everyone show their piece And then they can uh, understand, you know, there's a lot of feedback that comes from there. And then they they can see where the value is or how much it's worth currently. Um, But, you know, again, it's it's irreplaceable. So so no matter what, uh, it's irreplaceable. That's that's the thing here. It's kind of like a Bitcoin. Once you sell it, uh, you know, that's when
2: you're kicking yourself. Well, it's far far more special than a Bitcoin. <laughs> it has it has it has. First of all, it has physical substantiality, which you know, and beauty and art to it. So, yeah, I would I would think it's worth more than a Bitcoin aesthetically. Uh, n- maybe not financially, but aesthetically for sure. Uh-huh. All right, man, we need to take another quick uh, commercial break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about the uh, terrible Operation Pipe Dreams that you alluded to earlier. So, everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with Jason Harris.
0: 2000- garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find
1: a store near you
0: or order yours online at smartpots.com.
2: All right, what's up everybody? And we are back here on Canthropology with glass pioneer Jason Harris of Jerome Baker Designs. So it was on February twenty fourth, two 2003, that Operation Pipe Dreams was launched by the US government, uh, being headed by Attorney General John Ashcroft at the time. And their goal was to go after and shut down uh, glass and drug paraphernalia uh, merchants and and manufacturers. Can you talk to us a little about what went down uh, from your perspective on that fateful day?
3: Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, um, you know, I was laying in bed, you know, of course, sleeping at 6 a.m. And um, I heard a, a pounding on the door upstairs and then, uh, you know, kind of was like, hmm, something's not right. And so when I went upstairs and saw outside of my front door, I couldn't see past all the police in the front yard. There were so many of them pressed against the door. And so I let them in. They, you know, Treated me like a total criminal, you know. Wanted to, wanted to shoot the dogs, the whole thing, and then they they hogtied me, <clears throat> and uh, you know had a lot of questioning about you know what's the, what is this stuff and you know paraphernalia, and uh, they had a whole you know table set up at my house, and they all sat around the table, and you know while I'm hogtied there, but I could see outside my windows that the hi- you know I'm down below was I five, I could see the the highways still going, people are still moving. You know, the world hadn't stopped, you know, like it seems to me it did. Right. Well, I'm laying there. But uh, not long after I went to um, the county jail there in Eugene and ended up, uh, you know, I'm just sitting there in the jail and I'm looking up at this uh, the TV screen. It's behind chicken wire, so you can't touch it, you know, at the jail cell there. And there's John Ashcroft on TV. And he's saying, uh, you know, hey, we got the biggest, baddest paraphernalia dealers. You know, look at these. They had a lipstick container, you know, that was actually a pipe. And you know, they're they're actually, you know, promoting these things to kids. You know what I mean? Look at this stuff. And and I'm thinking, holy shit, I'm in fucking trouble. And so uh, they always
2: bring the kids into it, like like as if weed people are like out there trying to like <laughs> recruit kids at elementary schools or something. Right. We're just right, getting right. high, man. We you know nobody's trying to like turn kids on. You know, it's. It's it's so weird. Right. I mean, that's the only way they can do it to like you know bolster their their argument, I guess. But uh, right so, to justify, yeah. it, sure. So take a step back for one second, and then pick up where you were. But uh, so how many how many officers were there? I mean,
1: they, were did they have the big weapons and the SWAT gear and all that stuff? Oh yeah, they had the SWAT gear, the DEA jackets, the weapons. They had a half track out front. Um, you know, meanwhile at the
3: same time they were at my house. Uh, I had three other buildings, so they were at each of the three other buildings, my head shop and my my, where, my warehouse and my production facility. You know, I'm thinking back, you know, I was being followed at certain times with by suburbans, you know, uh, for months beforehand that I, I could swear I was being followed, but people thought I was crazy. Uh, there was people going through my garbage, you know, here and there. There was a two-year investigation on 55 different people around the country, so they spent millions investigating the scene I think it was around 12 million I read. Yeah. <sighs> Crazy. Um, so, you know, looking back, I saw it all. And when I was in the shit, you know, it was unseeable. So, you know, it taught me pay attention to red flags. Um, but but, but again, you know, during all, all the, the, the bust, uh, you know, the, there's, I don't know, I don't know how many hundreds of police officers there were and, and, and you know. It was a major, major thing there in Eugene. I was in every newspaper. We were on the the, the Bill Maher show with, with Woody that night. And wow. We the Rolling Stone covered it. You guys covered it. High times.
2: So you were in the jail you know? cell, and you see Ashcroft on the TV, and you're like, oh, shit, I'm I'm really in trouble now. <laughs> and then what? where did it progress from there? My, my instant
3: thought was I had one guy working for me. Um, he was my foreman at the time, and he was the guy – that I had gone to prison for growing weed in Pennsylvania. He was one of the first guys that I knew that grew kind, but, you know, that was one of where I was getting the weed from in Pennsylvania. So later in life, when he was in prison, I called his wife and said, Hey, uh, you guys come, him and you and the kids come out, and when he gets out of prison, uh, we'll have him moved out to Oregon, and he can be the foreman of my shop. Send so him, like, firing guys and shit. So I needed some hard ass in there. And so this was the guy I brought out there. And when I was in the jail there, I, that was my single phone call. Is I called him up, and I said, "Hey man, uh, this is some serious shit. I want you to go down there and steal every single thing that they left." So the police had had basically taken all of my inventory, all the glass, but they left the equipment. And so he, by him going down there and unload, you know, he got everything out of there, brought it out to a barn in the middle of Oregon, and I just got to you know sell equipment. While I was on my, you know, out
1: my house arrest and my parole and stuff like that. And that's how I kind of financed my, make my, my way through all that. Yeah. But, wow. Um, that was smart that thinking. Was
3: my, that was my call. And, and that was, uh, that was what I felt was the most important move to make at the time to save my ass.
2: Yeah. So like you said, there was 55 uh, companies and individuals targeted uh, in the operation across the country. Most famously, Tommy Chong was one of them, uh, who was, you know, him and his son were, you know, selling pipes on uh, selling bongs online, Chong bongs or whatever. And, uh, you know, they were kind of entrapped into selling it across state lines when they originally didn't even want to do that. Um, So the whole thing was just a big, tremendous waste of uh, money and resources, because even despite all that, I mean, the glass industry and paraphernalia industry just motored on anyway. But tell me a little about your case. So uh, how did how did your case shake out uh, as far as, you know, your court dates, your your penalties? What did you did you do any jail time? Tell me how, how it worked out.
3: Uh, you know, number one, uh, when the feds get you, uh, you're going to you're going you're gonna to come up with a guilty plea. It's very rare that anybody um, that gets arrested by the feds gets a not-guilty play. So that's, that's the bottom line there, and, and, and everybody knows that. So all 55 people came guilty. Tommy was the only one who did the full gear in prison. Um, and that was, I think, just, uh, again, it's it's a, it's a using the justice system to make a political statement. Um, so that's what they did with Tommy. So by putting the celebrity in jail, uh, they thought they made a statement on uh, saying, hey, paraphernalia is illegal. For whatever reason, I'm, not, I'm still not sure of, but that's what that's what happened.
2: So you ended up having to pay fines. You were on house arrest. Did you did you see any actual jail time?
3: Massive fines, um, a year of house arrest, and no no real jail time. I did about a week the county jail. there. Oh,
2: okay. Well, that's good at least. Um, but obviously they, they confiscated all your, your, not all your equipment. Cause you got some of that out, like you said, but, uh, they confiscated your, your, your inventory and, uh, and you, anything you could do to stay in business. They even took your website, right? They took your, your URL.
3: Yeah, they took my computers. Uh, they took every, every bit of, bit of hardware I had in the shop and then they took all the inventory to this day. I don't even know where it is. I got the computers back, uh, minus hard drives or, or with destroyed hard drives. So, um, anything Pre, you know, February 23rd, 2003, in terms of digital pictures and things like that, we're all gone. Uh, I only have, you know, I had a camera with some stuff on there and I had a couple of discs with some things on there. And that's what I've been, you know, regurgitating over these these years, just trying to show what I have um, in terms of, you know, of real pictures from pre-dating, you know, the, the bust. Um, but, but yeah, other than that, you know, everything was gone. I paid a lot of money in fines and a lot of money in, in legal fees and, um, you know, at the sacrifice of 70 people that were working hard and we paid taxes and we paid everything in the, in the city and stuff like that. They shut us down. Um, and, and during that, that shut, when they shut us down, there was a champs trade show a few weeks later that, you know, I, I went to the show just to unload my, Rest of my T-shirts or whatever other gear I could get get rid of to raise some legal fees, you know. And I got looked at at the show like an outcast, It'd be like, you know, hey man, It'd be like, oh, you know, uh, I got bit by the zombies, so I'm not allowed in the door type thing. You know what I mean? And I felt really rejected because of that. Wow, you know, by the industry.
2: That's that's uh, kind of. I mean, you didn't narc on anybody, right? I mean, there's no reason for them to not. Be not upset only did I not
3: you. narc on anybody, but it's about you know supporting your. Your, the others in your industry and so there was a long you know a, long, a few a period of years there where where it was just i was i was kind of shunned because i was hot
1: basically yeah well let's talk a
2: little about that about the aftermath of operation pipe dreams i know you you obviously couldn't do pipes anymore so you had to look for other ways to earn money and and keep your brand alive um i know you did some some like lifestyle products and skateboard stuff and you uh you were teaching for a while at the university of oregon too right
3: Absolutely. I uh, I ended up getting a job at the University of Oregon, uh, building out their whole glass blowing program, which is still there today. I worked at the Eugene Glass School six days a week, <clears throat> making a, a massive body of work. Um, so I, I really made the most of my couple of years there in Eugene after my arrest in terms of just, just getting my hands in uh, to, to the, the medium and being able to um, kind of just get a full – technical grasp on anything i wanted to do at that point because there was no rules i I didn't have to make something i didn't have to make a bunch of something i just had to make whatever i wanted and then i had opportunity to teach a lot of people and i taught there at the university for two years so the the program's still there today it's in the emu craft center it's a great program
2: yeah and you you use the skateboard and lifestyle and clothing products to keep your logo and your name out there in the head shops and stuff right
3: yeah, I felt I felt that, you know, we had spent millions on branding over the years and and, and I didn't really want to let the thing go sour. Um, and I felt like we had space and uh, I had real estate in certain smoke shops and I had the ability to kind of get in on, on the ground floor of another industry, which is skateboarding. We did a lot of different decks. We had a skate team for a number of years. We go to ASR show um, and we swam as fast as we could in that river of giant fish. Um, but it's a very, very hard industry skateboarding. Yeah, Um, so we we were at the one of the couple of the last few ASR shows that had happened. Um, We met some great contacts. We did some good business. And as as the thing progressed, uh, we just kind of went underground with 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 the label. And we had uh, different glass produced at different factories. My partner, Jordan Schefter, we started the company together in college. Uh, and he's, he took, kind of took care of the business during that time, so he was able to rebrand pieces with our branding on them and get them out to um, head shops and kind of keep our thing alive and get a little bit of cash for the road, right?
2: Right on. And then at some point, you decided to pack up and leave Eugene and move to Maui. Can you tell us a little about what was the impetus behind that decision and when, when did that move happen?
3: <laughs> After two years of being at the University of Oregon um, and really getting my hands in the medium and, and understanding what I could do with it, I wanted to go somewhere where I could sell artwork, uh, made in glass. And I felt like Maui, Hawaii, was the best place to go. There's 60 galleries within a one mile square, a one mile stretch on Lahaina, and um, I knew that if I made whales, and dolphins, and turtles there, that I could um, sell them to tourists. Uh, I knew that, that, that the government could maybe tell me that I can't make something out of glass, but I still had my hand that I could still make pieces. So I went out there and worked for a number of years just making artwork and selling them to tourists. At the same time, you know, Jordan kept the company and the brand alive here on the mainland. And uh, you know, we, we had the best of
2: both going on, from on for a little while. And that was Maui Glass Design, right? That was the name of your company out there?
3: name of the brand out there is Maui Glass Blowing. Maui Glass Blowing, okay. And as the years went on and we did more and more paraphernalia back here, I've transitioned. So I have my main studio in Las Vegas. And now we have um this uh incredible, you know, flame working facility here that we're able to produce the old school style of bongs. And um so I've kind of re re honed my attention here and we've joined forces with a group out there and um I can, you know, use the studio sometimes. And um, I promote their work greatly. It's called Makai Glass Maui. And, um, you know, they've they've, they've transitioned what we've done in the past to what we're doing here in the present. So really fun stuff. Really cool. Uh, Another angle on the whole glass blowing scenario. Um, But I really enjoy the bongs. And I really enjoy having the voice of a brand that's been in the cannabis industry now for 30 years this year.
2: Yeah, it's awesome. And, of course, Maui has amazing surfing too, which I know uh, is a great uh, you know added benefit, right? You pa- Surfing is one of your passions, right? How long have you been surfing?
3: Yeah, surfing is one of my passions. I've been, I've been surfing since, gosh, uh, probably 84, 83. And um, the whole allure of going to Maui for the art, um, you know, coupled with uh, being able to surf Uh, more than than the average joe it was huge so now uh definitely it's part of not only a um a passion but an addiction so when i when i do go back and forth um i do spend you know a lot of time out there my family's there and you know i'm able to kind of have that facet when i go out there and go surf and really get get grounded out so that I'm able to come back here and grind it out. Because <laughs> okay. when I'm working, we're, we're grinding on, on eight-day weeks out here for sure.
2: Cool, man. Well, uh, I'm going to take one more quick commercial break. Uh, but when we come back, we'll talk about the big comeback of Jerome Baker-Glass here on Cancer Apology.
0: Attention Cannabis Radio listeners. Do you suffer from chronic pain, anxiety, depression, or PTSD? These are the most common qualifying conditions for medical cannabis. Did you know that in many states you can visit a doctor online with no waiting rooms, no drive, not even an appointment needed? See a doctor right from your smartphone. It's fast, convenient, and it'll save you money as most states don't collect taxes on medical cannabis purchases. So what are you waiting for? Go to MarijuanaDoctors.com slash radio and get $5 off your on-demand medical card evaluation.
2: All right, guys, and we are back with Jason Harris of Jerome Baker Designs, our guest this week here on Canthropology, talking about the history Of glass art in America and Jerome Baker's unique place in that history. So uh, after Operation Pipe Dreams, we talked about you couldn't do pipes anymore. You were doing art instead in in Maui. Uh, You were keeping the brand alive, but then something changed and you were able to come back and start doing glass again. Can you talk a little about when that was and what it was that changed that enabled you to get back in the game?
3: Well, the um, the changing factor for me, uh, the decision maker for me to come back out of the closet, so to say, is uh, in 2012, the High Times Cannabis Cup in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I got a, a sponsor to bring me back there and blow glass at the at the at the show. Uh, so we blew glass in that old tent uh, that was out there. We, you know, it was a real ranky dank setup, just like mm-hmm. always, but uh, we did it. And at that event, we smoked cannabis legally on the uh, mainland United States, and that was my first time doing that. Um, you know, in a in a recreational setting, medical was one thing, but uh, when recreational hit, um, that was my first signal to uh, that this is the this is the new this is the new way. My second signal that day was that Adam Dunn had moved back from Amsterdam. Now, this was a mentor yeah. that I had. I had been over in Amsterdam many years. I, re- I rented the space from him. My blue glass in his building. I knew he was the American with the the mindset and the balls to move over there and do what he did uh, in t- for for the cannabis and the the, the 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 drive, you know, to 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 you know, just just Americanize this thing, okay? Which which was just crazy crazy stuff. And when I saw that he had moved back to America, that was my other signal that this is the new mecca for cannabis. And so we started working on a plan and then um, understood that we would would kind of come back out of the closet and start to develop the brand again.
2: And you were able to reacquire your old website for like just 700 bucks, right?
3: (laughs) So, uh, in in the big picture of things, we we got the, the website was confiscated, JeromeBaker.com, which was a really important website for me, and and when I went and looked up to, to buy that website back, I might have been just a little bit before that 2012 uh, experience, um, I was able to buy it on an auction for seven hundred dollars. Now that's my same website that was confiscated by the the federal government, and I and I'm I i do not know if anybody's done this before, like gotten that web gotten a, a IP confiscated and then re engaged it. So, so now I have my website back. Um, We're, we're moving and shaking uh, with a plan and we find out about the legalization in Nevada. And in my opinion, Vegas is the place to be because of the trade shows, because of the hub of activity, the energy, the excitement. And at that at that, we decided to come to Vegas and and legalizations happened here now in a huge way. There's huge grows. I've visited most of the major grows here and they all just blow my mind uh, from from little to big. And, And and it's been just an incredible experience opening this thing up in Las Vegas.
2: So talk now, a little about that. Talk a little about uh, the Dream Factory, uh, when, when well, you opened well, my, it
1: and how my, it came my, together.
3: My, my big come out in Las Vegas was uh, we, we made a series of 30 giant bongs, uh, the largest of which is 24 feet tall. And that went over on Fremont Street at Cannabition, uh, the largest glass bong in the world. Uh, we had it set up over there for a year. with the It was all uranium. It made a big impact in the city. We had the mayor down there, every rock star, every skateboarder, the whole shebang. Um, And it was a lot of fun. Uh, That was my big coming out project here in Vegas. And then since then, uh, we've done a lot of stuff uh, with with some of the major dispensaries here from New Woo, Planet 13, Acres, Jardine, Essence, uh, um, you know, just on and on and on and on and on. And and, and a lot of them uh, are our friends. Uh, They understand who we are. We're able to come in here. They spend a lot of time now here at the Dream Factory, which is my headquarters. Um, It's out here in the Arts District. And it's just a really cool space. Uh, we're surrounded by, you know, little breweries, tattoos, hot rods, uh, motorcycle shops. So it's, it's a really interesting zone. And we're able to kind of be, be, our, be who we want to be here. And we are, we are the Bong, Bong guys. <laughs> and what's, our, what's the big deal now is we've just last week completed filming our first season of the new TV show Operation Pipe Dreamers. Awesome. This is a challenge show. It's a twelve glass blower challenge. Uh, we brought in twelve of the of the, the top pipe makers in the world, and they uh, competed here over six episodes for one final winner who took home ten thousand dollars in cash, a champion leather jacket by West Coast Leathers, and all kinds of other goodies. And most importantly, the 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 prize the the, the giant trophy, the ancestral flame of knowledge. So this, uh, this show is uh, uh, Tommy's involved, Tommy Chong's involved with us with the show, uh, and he's going to cool. be, he, we, just because of COVID, we had a, a really you know tight bubble here for the first season filming, uh, but we're going to film the next season two in September, and he'll be here on site as one of the judges, and uh, we're super excited to have him. And uh, the whole thing is just so fun. It takes this kind of forged-in-fire, cupcake wars kind of a feel sure. um, where, where we, we, we really give you, you know, who these glass blowers are, what's their background, what's in their heads, what are they thinking, and, and, and what's going on with these pipes. And so it really brings the, the masses in. Um, it's a YouTube presentation, so everybody's going to be able to watch it. It's going to live on there, and people can, can, can go there and watch you know, all, the, all the episodes. It's going to be a lot of fun. And the big takeaway here is that all the pieces that we've made during the comp- competition are going to be auctioned off for sale. 100% of the proceeds are going to go towards charities. So 50% of all the proceeds goes towards a scholarship fund for the Pilchuck Glass School to send people up there that wouldn't have otherwise been able to go. The other 50% goes to each artist's individual choice of charities. So all that's going to be coming out soon. I'm going to need your help, Bobby Black, uh, (laughs) advertising when we're going to do this, and I'll keep everybody abreast on my Instagram
2: Sure, yeah. Um, Let us know when it's going to premiere. And,
3: and everybody should definitely follow Operation Pipe Dreamers on Instagram. It's a really cool play, and if you're if you want to, uh, one of your next uh, episodes, uh, I can put you on with the producer, and he's a great uh, talk. Uh, it was his dream to make this TV show. He's coming over from the World Series of Poker. He's multi Emmy award winning producer, and it's like it's like you know somebody coming in. Uh, uh, you know that that just wants something that's totally wild and crazy and uh, we we're able to execute and, and it was just it was just what a magical experience we had a lot of really cool players here uh, that were we had a lot of cool celebrity get the uh, judges one was uh a um, um, the godfather of the wrestler. Um, another one was the lead guitarist from Quiet Riot. Uh, we had some uh, veterans here that were uh, uh, healed with cannabis, healed PTSD with cannabis. He was a celebrity judge. We had a chef that cooks with infused cannabis. He was a celebrity judge. So it was just a super, super good time. And each each of the judges had that theme wrapped around them, so the pipes were made in their theme, and it was just uh, just a magical experience. And we had we did have one complete winner, and it is super super cool. And I can't wait for you guys to all see it.
2: Yeah, it sounds amazing. I can't wait to see it. Uh, let us know when that's going to premiere for sure. It's so great to hear you doing this project. I feel like there should be more and more cannabis entertainment content out there. Um, of course, this Absolutely. isn't your first, uh, you know, time on film. You've been involved in a lot of different uh, things before. <laughs> I know you do a podcast, The Baker Cast. I know that you've been involved with other glass uh, glass art uh, films, documentaries, and things. I know Degenerate Art for one. Uh, the 2011 documentary. Um, there was also a movie called Blown Away, right? Something. Can you tell us about? What that was.
3: Yeah, we did a, a full-length uh, um, kind of a lifestyle about our, our Maui experience, and that's called Blown Away, and that's on YouTube and, and Vimeo. Uh, but a really cool one that I've done recently uh, was with, with the company Leafly, and that's called a Redemption Bong, and that's on TV, or you can look it up on YouTube. It's Jerome Baker Redemption Bong, and it really tells our whole story um, in, a, in a really – well done video production, um, and then it also shows creation, which is the most magical thing for me. Uh, throughout all this, is sticking the glass in front of the fire, melting it, making it something. It's almost like um, something's being teleported through me, and here it comes out, and boom, there it is. And it came out from brain to reality, and it's a it's a, it's a three dimensional creation that comes out. So you know, uh, it, there's something much much more to it. Um, that drives me and this particular video the redemption bong is a great example and you can you can really kind of get into get the insight of what's going on in there there's a few more on there how to make the bong by jerome baker or um we did another one called pipe dreams and that was a great production and and a lot of these are just again about creation and 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 letting letting the general public understand what's in the mind's eye of the artist you know in the back picture here is. If I make a bong today and somebody comes in here and buys it, that's the person that sees it and enjoys it and whoever he shows it to. If there's no picture of it, it's gone. It doesn't get logged in our history. Nobody yeah. really sees it. So for me, the video, the video production, the the the, the capturing, the essence, the whole thing, that kind of gives it a legacy. That gives it its mark in history. Um, that'll last. Sure. The bond could break, and so that's 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 what I'm I'm concerned with. Uh, and by making these video documents. It's almost like like you're doing with your podcast you're understanding the, the history and this thing and, and again the whole deal here is we're wrapped around cannabis I mean this TV show Operation Pipe Dreamers is goal is to make sure that we infect the hearts and minds of all <laughs> Americans. To get this fucking plant legalized on the big picture way, we can weed through all the all the little idiosyncrasies of bad uh, uh, bills and bad laws written as how they're written. Over time, I think it'll it'll find the path of least resistance. But the big picture now is full federal legalization because reality is. The the thing that I'm doing today is making – I'm manufacturing drug paraphernalia. Even though I have a permit from the city of Las Vegas to do it here in my building, it's still illegal on a federal level. The exact same laws that got me arrested in 2003 are still on the books today. They could still come bust my doors down and do it, and they can arrest Bobby Black for knowing I'm doing it and documenting it. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It goes deep here. This is – the laws are set up so that it's wrong right now. They have to be changed in order for us to really push this thing through. We, you know, The big cannabis people can't use banks, uh, and they still come down on pipe makers for uh, PayPal and all this other shit. So reality is, is we have to legalize and understand what is paraphernalia and what is it used for and, 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 and how does it all work. Uh, and th- this is going to be a long time. Even if a change, if, the, if the whole thing went legal tomorrow, my belief is we'd have to really dial in the paraphernalia laws, and that could take uh, you know, up to two presidential terms. So that's, that's kind of where all that's at.
2: Yeah, right on, man. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you're out there documenting this culture and these pieces and all and all this great stuff. And you've always been such a great spokesperson for for the glass art movement and glass art scene. You're a pioneer, you're your best great representative. I mean, you're award winning. Going back to like 96, all the high times cups you've won for glass and, and, and all the different awards. And then, uh, and then last year on 420 last year, you know, world of cannabis, we partnered with the cannabis business awards to do uh, 420 icons listing the top 100 cannabis influencers of all time. And you were on that list, uh, deservedly so, um, and more so than that. We were so honored to have you be part of our live stream event, and to actually make the trophies for the Four Twenty Icons event that we gave away to our contest winners, which were really cool, man. So thanks for participating in all that.
3: Super fun, and you know, uh, you guys represent part of the culture that that is is OG, and and so reality is, we need to make sure that the newbies understand what, what what's going on here i mean now you can go in and you can just you don't even need a lighter you suck on the thing and it's getting you high uh we want to we want to make sure that the that that the og vibe gets remembered and and and, and it's and it's embedded into what this culture is going to become
2: right on man so well uh, where can people find you and your projects online uh, i know you already talked about the videos but what about the rest of the stuff
3: you know every day i'm posted on instagram so it's jerome underscore baker you can go on there and check it out JeromeBaker.com has all my history, kind of a, a story about who we are and what we do. And JeromeBaker.shop is connected to that, and that's where you can buy the newest stuff. Uh, you can message me on Instagram. Uh, we do have a, um, a sprite that helps us. It's at wandering underscore sprite. You can hit her up, and she can you know kind of FaceTime you through or walk you through what we have available now. Um, and it's it's we are a small company, man, where we're, we're just banging out one one bong at a time and um, trying to keep people high and happy. And, um, you know, we're just just rolling through, man. Right on. Uh, any final thoughts before we go? You know, again, I appreciate what you guys are doing for the industry, uh, documenting this kind of stuff, and um, I want to be here for you as we move forward in time. So just keep me in mind, and always uh, I'm part of your your hui for sure, as well as you're part of mine. I appreciate your your is including me on all your really cool, creative stoner ideas.
2: Right on, man. Well, mahalo for all that you do for for the community, for the scene, for the industry for the movement. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, keep on crushing it, brother.
3: Right on, bro. Love you, Bobby. I'll All love right. Bro.
2: Talk to you soon. All right. And that about wraps things up for episode 10 of Canthropology. For more information about the World of Cannabis Museum project or to read our Canthropology blog, visit our website at worldofcannabis.museum. If there's a guest or topic you'd like us to cover, or you have an item you think is worthy of inclusion in our museum, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button. Leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. A quick shout out to our great media partners, Cannabis Radio and Hayes Radio, as well as Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this is Bobby Black, and I am history.